You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Happy October, friends and neighbors near and far. It's really fall. It's October, but it's supposed to be 90 today. And it doesn't feel like it's supposed to feel, supposed to in quotes. What does a fall day feel like? Do you remember? Don't you find that you forget year after year what normal is? But we know our climate is a damaged thing. And I find it very hard to figure out what to wear every day. Now, if I've told you this before, I apologize. But when I was growing up, a long time ago, it was a different century, there were four distinct seasons in the Mid-Atlantic region. Spring was a whole season, I tell you, a whole season, not a day or a week. And I'm being serious. I owned a garment called a spring coat because in those days, it could be very blustery and they hadn't invented quilted jackets or jean jackets. So you had a coat for spring. You had a heavy winter coat, which was a wool coat. You didn't wear a parka in the 60s or 70s unless you were skiing because that was the way it was. And don't get mad at me. I didn't make the rules. That's how it was. But anyway, wherever you live or wherever you are while you're reading this or listening to the podcast, if I sound sermony, and I don't mean to, it's because I've just celebrated that Jewish New Year, and I am full of sermons that I've heard, some very wise words. So Happy New Year to all those who observe. And now here are my five great things for the first week of the year 5,780, which is the Jewish year. Number one. After hearing a wonderful sermon about the environment and sustainability from a rabbi whose mother is a longtime lawyer for the EPA, I want to thank my friend Diane and my partner's daughter, Izzy, for being the people in my life who patiently remind their friends, including me, to be extra conscientious. Using reusable glass bottles instead of plastic, being smart about the dishwasher, and so on. I appreciate you both, even if it doesn't always seem that I do. Number two, a shout out to my longtime partner, Michael, for being such a kind fellow. I feel so supported and known, and I hope he feels the same. Number three, the art of conversation. I know it's an important feature of my life, but it feels like I need to reiterate this all the time. Are you coming, the letter R and you coming, uh, text to a friend? is not a conversation. Neither is the word K to mean okay. We have come to rely on text as a painless and static-free way of connecting, but it's not connecting, guys. Face-to-face is the very best way. Your eyes, your body language, and of course your words. It seems practically intimate these days, and it's something we're missing. And of course, I try to nudge that along on the podcast. Okay, number four, Venn diagrams. I love them. I saw one on Facebook, even though I allegedly don't look at Facebook. That's a lie. That's fake news. But there is one that I copied onto my page. It says the Venn diagram of my life. The two top circles are things I like to do, things I'm good at. And underneath, not touching whatsoever, no overlap, is things that make money. And I laugh about it. I mean, I'm definitely part of the pro bono workforce. I don't have anything whatsoever 
against earning a living. And it's something I aspire to. But I'm very lucky I can do work that means something to me. But I'm really hoping that'll change in the next year, that the it will still have meaning, but it will generate income. Number five, using the good china and flatware. I usually keep them wrapped up in their felt pajamas, and they're already back hibernating for the next holiday or family celebration, but they made our table so much prettier, and I think they make the food taste better. It's lovely, and I'm fortunate to have nice things, but you know what? I should use them and not save them. They don't serve any purpose when they are in storage. Coming up, the wise words of Norm Ornstein in a moment. This week's guest is someone I've long admired. Norm Ornstein is an expert and pundit known to anyone who has a television or a subscription to the Washington Post. As a scholar in residence at the American Enterprise Institute, which is, I think, an essentially conservative think tank, he's studied the way our government was intended to work and is not afraid to call people and institutions out, regardless of party. He is the co-author with Thomas Mann of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Welcome, Norm. It's great to be with you, Lisa. Well, it's a crazy moment to be with you, Norm. It feels <laughs> like at the moment our government in in each branch is whirling out of control. Uh, we haven't seen anything uh, like this, and that includes uh, the Nixon impeachment or other crises that we've had, certainly in our lifetimes. Uh, the major difference, and it's true with Nixon, it's true with uh, Clinton, which was itself different, uh, is that back, especially with Nixon, and when there were and there were times I was here in Washington during that uh, uh, trauma and turmoil. There were times when we thought we could careen out of control, we could have a coup of some sort, but the institutions held and the norms were respected by, especially uh, for Nixon, Republicans in Congress. We had a, an inquiry in the Senate led by Howard Baker uh, with Fred Thompson as the counsel. Um, and, you, you know, people who were around remember when uh, Baker set the tone. Uh, what did the president know and when did he know it was the core? But then they did an honest examination of that. The Senate Republican leader, Hugh Scott, stood behind it. The House Republican leader, John Rhodes, uh, stood behind the impeachment inquiry in the House Judiciary Committee. We had people like William Cohen and Tom Railsback and M. Caldwell Butler, conservative Republicans who followed the law and the facts. Uh, we had Barry Goldwater, who joined the group going to Nixon after the House uh, inquiry had made it clear that he was going to be impeached and removed from office to get him to resign. Uh, we had a Supreme Court that voted unanimously to uh, get the Nixon tapes. I'm not sure what this Supreme Court would do, and if uh, the same thing occurred, it would probably be a five to four vote. Uh, Mitch McConnell is no Hugh Scott. 
Kevin McCarthy is no John Rhodes. There are no Barry Goldwaters or uh, Bill Cohens or Caldwell Butlers. The norms have been broken. The courts can't be relied upon. Uh, the president is careening out of control, calling for a civil war and uh, saying that this is a coup. And the people surrounding him, you know, John Mitchell was a corrupt attorney general for Nixon. Mm -hmm. He looks like Mother Teresa next to Bill Barr. And, and his wife, uh, Martha Mitchell, yes. looks like uh, um, what? A prophet. A prophet. <laughs> a prophet. A saint next to uh, Kellyanne Conway. Um, yeah. I wonder, not that she's married to the attorney general. Uh, okay, well, yeah. first of all, we had, at that time, Watergate. I was in high school. I was riveted to it. It was the best TV show at the time. I binge-watched yeah. it. Um, at that time, Elliot Richardson was the attorney general, I think. Is that right? Yes, he was. And, uh, and of course, he resigned. He resigned. Uh, out of As did the deputy attorney general, uh, uh, who uh, was uh, another uh, hero in this before uh, Robert Bork, who was the solicitor general, uh, gave in and fired Archibald Cox, Archibald the Cox. independent counsel. Right. So there is a there is a kind of precedent, except for one thing: the people, as we're agreeing, the people who were in those jobs in those positions then honored the Constitution, realized wrongdoing had happened, and felt responsible for fixing it. Everybody was relatively yeah. honest and honorable, even the criminals. But now everyone is a criminal. Everyone is throwing everyone else under the bus. And I just don't understand an America in which the attorney general is part of the uh, malignant uh, investigation and treasonous investigation of the opponent's family in another country's using another country's resources, and then throw and the in State Department uh, and the Secretary of State. Of State. Yeah. Secretary of State who lied uh, when right. he went on television saying he didn't know about the Ukraine call, who today uh, admitted that he was on that call. Right. So the nicest thing you can say about him is he's a liar. Um, but he's now trying to intimidate State Department employees to keep them from uh, speaking to the, the uh, House impeachment inquiry and uh, to keep from turning things over. Fortunately, there are some people in that department, at least, who do put country and constitution first. You know, Lindsey Graham, during the 2016 campaign and in the immediate aftermath, kind of set a frame here. Uh, there comes a time when you have to put country over party. The uh, Nixon uh, times, Republicans, and it's built into our system, were partisans. But when the lines got drawn, they put country first. 
the last person who's putting country first right now is Lindsey Graham, right. uh, who's been uh, just an utter embarrassment. Um, but that's true almost across the board. Uh, Jeff Flake, a uh, retired uh, Republican senator from uh, uh, Arizona, a very conservative man, uh, said uh, of his former colleagues, uh, the Republicans in the Senate, if it were a secret vote, 35 of them would vote to convict Trump and remove him. Uh, it's not a secret vote. Uh, but the way I frame that is that means 18 of them would basically uphold um, a, a traitorous uh, a sociopath. Um, and the 35 are just basically moral cowards. When you and your colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, and I, I believe that you're probably one of the more liberal members there, and and yeah, right. When but but you're somebody who can cross the aisle, and you're someone who's worked with people on on both sides, as I said. When it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be president. Did anyone fear that he would start dismantling the different areas, the different I mean, we all worried about the courts, but did anybody yeah. think he was going to become a more paranoid a thug? <laughs> the answer to that is I did. And uh -huh. uh, I will tell you right after the election, um, I met with the board of the American Constitution Society which is a sort of uh, counterpart to the Federalist Society. Uh -huh. And uh, the message I gave them, which depressed them deeply, was um, we're going to see this Karina out of control. We are dealing with a man who is a lifelong narcissistic sociopath who has autocratic tendencies and um, is likely to stop at nothing and is not going to have the checks and balances that you would hope would otherwise be there. Um, most of my colleagues, conservative, uh, many of them are, their policy wonks, mm -hmm. um, were appalled by Trump and have been appalled by Trump. And I can tell you that many of them are not thrilled with Republicans in Congress because they have ideas here, some of them ideas that could easily find bipartisan approval when it comes to tax reform or uh, opportunities for jobs uh, or uh, economic stimulus when it's needed or uh, on health policy. How do and, you? Oh, sorry. And they were they were ignored. Basically, those ideas were not uh, anything that the Republican leaders in the House and Senate had any interest in when they did their farcical repeal and replace, or mm -hmm. um, the uh, ginormous tax cut, which was which I think will go down as the most reckless fiscal policy in American history, other than the Smoot Hawley tariffs. Right. Right. <laughs> I am wondering how he was able to capture or hijack the Republican Party because it feels obviously during the Nixon Watergate era in the uh, early 70s, late 60s, or Vietnam War to Watergate, we had two very different tribes, but there wasn't the huge chasm between them. There were some people who would say it's hard to tell the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, and they said that for a long time. And now 
it does seem like the good, I hate to put it this way, but the good Republicans are hiding or retiring or have been brainwashed. So uh, a couple of things I would say here. One is um, there are a couple of books I've done, uh, one with uh, Tom Mann, a Brookings scholar, uh, the second with Tom Mann and E.J. Dionne, another Brookings scholar, mm-hmm. which and bo- the books, by the way, make great holiday gifts. Um, they do. One in 2012 was called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And the other in 2017 is One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And you know, I you're very those, good. You're very good with subtitles. Like I'm good with yeah. titles. Yeah. Um, I um, mention those because they frame the uh, genesis of the decline of a political party um, going back way before Trump. Trump has accelerated the pace. He didn't create this situation. It actually goes back decades. It goes back to Newt Gingrich coming to Congress in 1978 Mm -hmm. um, and uh, deliberately tribalizing our politics with the goal of breaking the Democrats' stranglehold on majorities in the House. But it had great repercussions. It goes back to um, the uh, end of the fairness doctrine and the rise of talk radio and tribal media. Mm-hmm. Um, it was accelerated by the populism of the late 1980s and early 1990s that brought us uh, Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader and Ross Perot, but then even more by the financial collapse in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I would say uh, that uh, the biggest mistake Barack Obama made as president in his domestic uh, affairs was not prosecuting a single one of the miscreants in the financial world who got us into this mess. Yeah. And when the public saw that they were suffering, losing their homes, having their homes, which meant their savings decline in value by 40 or 50 percent, losing their jobs or being stuck in dead end jobs, um, and they saw the people who created this walk away free and get bonuses. Right. Um, that fueled a kind of populism and anti-Washington effort, which in turn was uh, accelerated by uh, a Republican base and the leaders in Congress. And that led perhaps inevitably to a figure like Donald Trump. But I think what's also happened here, I don't see this as a, a, a traditional political party anymore that has a philosophy but works within the framework of a system that demands coalitions, uh, cooperation. Uh, I see it more as a cult that has more of a theology than a philosophy. Mm-hmm. The theology starts with tax cuts at any time, especially for the rich, whether times are good or times are bad, whether uh, you need a stimulus or you don't, um, in part with a goal of blowing up government. And that's another part of the theology. It doesn't look at a reality of what the implications are for policies. It starts with a kind of uh, belief that if we don't have government, people will have freedom and they will breathe it and everything will be fine and dandy. Um, It includes now a rejection of science because that can contradict your theology. Yeah, science And it also means that 
if you go against the uh, theology, you will be shunned as in a cult. Right. And that's why people, you know, we look at, uh, we, we have these explanations. Well, they're, uh, they don't want a primary from the right. Accurate from in many cases. And now you have a, a president who would use that kind of intimidating factor and who's managed to get 90% support uh, from uh, the people who buy into the theology and in a tribal world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, some of them may want to leave and become lobbyists and they need uh, uh, clients. But when you look at people like Bob Corker of Tennessee, mm-hmm. Lamar Alexander, who's retiring now, Tennessee, yeah. neither of those things apply. Right. But, you know, Corker, who was a fiscal conservative, voted for this reckless tax cut, voted for many of the nominees who are clearly corrupt and some of whom lied directly to Congress. Lamar Alexander has done nothing to suggest that he would push back against any of these things. That's what happens when you have a kind of cult. So if it turns out that, and I'm trying to be very um, cautious, if it turns out that uh, the president is guilty of treason, if it turns out that he is corrupt, if it turns out that he has invited other countries to meddle in our elections, or to, if he's welcomed them into the secret, you know, um, uh, voting brain that flows like electricity under Washington, if if all of that is so, will he refuse, and Americans, the popular vote, let's say, and even the electoral college vote somehow, despite Putin's influence, turn out not to welcome Donald Trump to a second term. Will he honor that, do you think? I think we have to worry uh, about the lengths to which he will go to stay in office, part of the reason being he to knows avoid, what he did. Yes, to avoid yeah. uh, his jail sentence. Prosecution. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the kickers here is uh, you could, uh, you know, you can imagine a deal cut where, uh, uh, all right, I'll leave, guarantee that Mike Pence will pardon me. Right. Um, but that doesn't apply to state crimes. And I doubt very much that the New York State Attorney General or the New York uh, DA uh, would agree to any of those terms. Um, What would be particularly delicious is if that kind of agreement took place and then Pence reneged on it. But uh, we're nowhere near there yet. Yes, we're nowhere near there. when you have a president who is... Uh, basically quoting approvingly um, uh, in his tweets a warning that this would result in a civil war. Right. When you have a president who takes uh, an impeachment inquiry and calls it a coup, mm-hmm. when you have lawless behavior by his chief advisors and by cabinet members who have who almost daily violate their oaths uh, and of his, office. And his children. And his, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a corrupt family, uh, mm-hmm. and it's almost like a crime family. 
So we don't know how all of that plays out. And the real question at some point is going to be how strongly civil society and the people in government who still do believe in uh, their fealty to the Constitution, we're seeing that today with some courageous moves by uh, people in the State Department defying Pompeo and uh, uh, coming to the Hill and agreeing to do depositions. Uh, We saw it with the whistleblower and Mm -hmm. uh, another hero who's not getting the attention he should, the inspector general of the intelligence community, who was a Trump appointee. Right. Um, And we may see that with some in the military. I'm deeply disappointed that uh, Jim Mattis, who Mm -hmm. left as secretary of defense, has said nothing uh, uh, after his departure. Uh, General McMaster, um, who uh, actually clearly lied when he was national security advisor and saying that the call with Russia was perfectly fine when we know that Trump basically gave a green light to further interference by the Russians and right. told them he was okay with what they had done. Um, so, you know, nothing is uh, certain here, uh, but we have to hope that we're going to see uh, all that we've built up in our culture, um, you know, hold firm and that the norms will be held. One thing I do believe will happen here is that over the next few weeks, we're going to see more revelations almost daily. We're going to see some people who were at least present when these uh, likely incriminating phone calls with Russia, with uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, with the Ukrainian president, with others, were uh, illegitimately put into the deep freeze Mm -hmm. in this uh, ultra-secure setting, which is only supposed to be used for uh, clear, sensitive national security information, like it was used, for example, uh, with the planning of the raid uh, to kill Osama bin Laden or to capture. Um, And some of them are going to be a little bit concerned that they themselves, because a lot of this was done to keep it from Mueller, um, that uh, they're going to be concerned that they could be charged with obstruction of justice and they'll try and cut a deal. I must say, I am. there are a couple of other people I am deeply disappointed in at the moment. One is Mueller himself. What Barr has done and what Barr is doing right now, the attorney general is off talking to foreign leaders, trying to suggest that the whole roots of the Mueller investigation were illegitimate, and therefore the Mueller investigation was illegitimate. It's shocking to me. It's shocking. I mean, as you say these words, Norm, it has to be kind of shocking to you, too. Oh, it is. And that's another betrayed by his uh, formerly close friend, Bill Barr. Yeah, totally. Not stepping up and protecting the integrity of his own investigation and the people who worked with him. I, I don't understand it. Yeah. Uh, the second person is somebody unknown to most of the public. His name is Michael Horowitz. He is the longtime inspector general at the Justice Department. Ah. I did a program with him at the Carter Center in Atlanta last year on the 40th anniversary of the Inspector General Act. Hmm. And he was an upstanding guy, but he has not, I believe, done his duty as an independent inspector general. Mm -hmm. And in particular, everything that Barr has done violates the oath of office of the attorney general. Yeah. It is lawless, lying behavior, and this is something 
where the inspector general should have stepped up and put a stop to it or at least issued a scathing report. We've had nothing. We had nothing from him on what we know was outrageous behavior during the campaign when Rudy Giuliani was getting information from elements in the New York FBI who were deeply hostile to Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. and he said it on television. And they were manipulating, among other things, the uh, uh, computer that uh, they had from Anthony Weiner, right. holding back information and then pushing and, in effect, blackmailing uh, Hill- James Comey oh, yeah, into Comey. those letters right before the election mm-hmm. that had a profound impact on the election. Absolutely. Um, this is uh, shocking to me. And uh, I want to see a greater spotlight put on Michael Horowitz to step up and do the job uh, that he's there to do. It does feel, it does feel when you, when you start listing what's right and what's wrong, that the imbalance is profound. What about the fact that the House is trying to provide subpoenas to various members of the Justice Department yeah. and the State Department And they've been told, these same humans have been told by their bosses not to go. Since when can you refuse a congressional subpoena? Um, Since now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, yeah. There are occasions when um, you can look at subpoenas that, are, uh, that might require you to uh, violate confidences with the president. Uh, there is uh, executive privilege. There, you know, there are limits, but that's not what we're dealing with here. No, it's not what and, we're dealing with, and these are not people who are privy to presidential no, executive or executive is, privilege. Well, he's tried to. Uh, Trump and his cronies have tried to block people who uh, are no longer in government, who hadn't right. served in the executive branch. They're using intimidation. I mean, it really is like a crime family. Um, And here, one of the challenges is that in the past, when we've seen subpoenas resisted, they can drag through months or years in the court uh, system. This is where we need an independent judiciary to step up and make it clear that the constitutional system is crystal clear when it comes to these things Mm -hmm. and do it in an expedited fashion. And I wish I had uh, confidence that that will happen. What I would also say is, and uh, this is something I've communicated to uh, people in the House who are dealing directly with the impeachment inquiry, you cannot delay moving forward based on these kinds of uh, stonewalled behave, stonewalling behavior. Right, right. And if they will not come in to testify, you, of course, move aggressively, taking them to court to force them. In some cases, you might use your power of inherent contempt, and I'd be perfectly fine with taking people who are defying legal action and throwing them in the uh, pokey inside the Capitol. Yeah. Um, which has happened in the past, although in the very, very distant past. But in the meantime, you can bring in other witnesses, bring in people who served in key positions in the intelligence community in the past 
under both Republican and Democratic presidents with, you know, uh, pristine integrity. Bring in former prosecutors Mm -hmm. who served in top positions under Democrats and Republicans and have them give the testimony. Change the way you're doing things. What did happen with Nixon is the Senate inquiry and the uh, House Judiciary Committee were educational experiences for Americans. Mm -hmm. As they saw all of the horrible things that had happened, it changed enough minds that it changed the complete dynamic. We've already seen some of that happen. We're up close to a majority of Americans who say impeachment should move forward. Mm -hmm. Trump himself reportedly said, I'm in trouble if it gets over 50%. And I Uh, heard that he calls Nancy Pelosi the assassin. Yeah, I well, mean, you know, the yeah. this is uh, this is uh, Roy Cohn's uh, protege. Yes, um, and also the protege of his late father, who was a vicious man as well. Right, and a racist, and a racist. Uh, yeah. Um, so you can, I think, alter enough viewpoints that even if you got, you know, you can move independence over to a much much larger share, understanding that this is not typical behavior by a president and that it crosses so many lines and that it endangers our fundamental system, you can as well uh, begin to convince more Republicans. And if his support among Republicans, which has been at 90 percent, going down to 60 percent, then you're going to start to see some of the uh, cowards uh, develop uh, backbones. Well, you wonder. Not a lot, but some. Yeah, you wonder what will happen to those backbones and what happened to them thus far. I mean, especially when you think of somebody like Lindsey Graham saying, you know, uh, several years ago, if you vote for Donald Trump, you get what you deserve. Now being his biggest toady, um, or or fighting to be his biggest toady, Um, I I do feel sometimes that one of the things that's making this all so much worse and feel so much worse, of course, is the fact that the news cycle never stops. You almost feel like, I yeah. shouldn't have slept tonight because I missed a big, you know, a big uh, uh, breaking news or I missed a new yeah. s- scandal and so on. And people are, many, many Americans are becoming energized and and finding themselves mesmerized by this spectacle in Washington. And many are finding themselves wiped out, numb, exhausted, depleted. And it's just, you know, it's, it's very difficult for the average civilian to have a life which involves their family, their work, the things they enjoy. And also being on top of the news, you know, and when I say this is a problem for a lot of people, I'm saying really it's a problem for me. There is too much to manage. I think one of the things about the Watergate episode, not episode, the era of Watergate that that younger listeners may not realize is that once the news was over for the night, after the 11 o'clock news, there was nothing to learn until the next morning's paper came out. No doubt. What was also the case is that we were dealing with a fairly narrow band of outrageous things all built around uh, the break-in of the Watergate. Right. And uh, what makes this uh, different 
and it's also something that we wrote about in One Nation After Trump, is that during the campaign, and it's true now as well, Trump managed to fend off one scandal with another and another and another and another. What gets a public outraged, and most people don't pay attention to these things, uh, much less really close attention, is when there's something out there that is pounded at day after day and it penetrates enough that people say, whoa, this is different, this is bad. Mm -hmm. But it's impossible for our press corps to focus on one thing when there's something else that happens. And then it becomes like a flood going over you, and a flood can sort of eliminate the impurities uh, in terms of outrage. Now, you put that together with the other reality, which is we have a press corps that is so paranoid, a mainstream press corps, of being accused of liberal bias that they still normalize abnormal behavior and try and put it as both sides. Um, that makes it difficult as well. Well, and and why, and, and, yeah. and the administration considers the press the quote unquote enemy of the people, and yeah. there are no more press briefings. And, what about and that? The press corps, the press, which is outrageous, outrageous, itself, but a press corps that is called the enemy of the people, whose fundamentals are themselves under challenge, react like a battered spouse. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been the worst, longest date ever. Yeah. You know, this is, this is, yes, battering. I feel like a battered spouse, too, yeah. come to think of it. Yeah. Um, I think we all do. Well, not yes, we, we all. But, well, not but we all, but not plenty we all, of us. But plenty yeah. of us. Norm, it's, it's, is there, is there, well, look, we don't know what's going to happen. Anything could happen. Just remember, folks, that in, the Watergate situation, a bunch, a small handful of Americans who were close to President Nixon broke into the Democratic headquarters to to get the advantage over the Democrats. That was a small group. Now we have our attorney general going to Italy to find dirt on the yeah. Democrats. I mean, it's just it's a global mess. And a huge global embarrassment. Oh, my gosh. And and I will say, you know, one other element here. Uh, When I look at this cabinet, I mean, you know, the family uh, is one thing. When I look at this cabinet, I'd be hard-pressed to find a single member of the cabinet who is clean. Yes, The level of corruption, (laughs) of lying, of uh, acting on behalf of special interests and distorting policy um, from uh, Wilbur Ross. Is uh, he awake yet? He seems to be asleep all the time. Uh, that's one problem. Yeah. But the fact is he lied directly to Congress about the census. Right. He has engaged in insider trading, has not uh, given information about the holdings that he has, lied about them on his forms. We have Steve Mnuchin, who's the most corrupt Treasury Secretary in the history of the country. We have, uh, besides uh, Pompeo, um, a an acting Secretary of Defense who uh, has said nothing about all these flights for uh, military flights <laughs> yes. diverted to give Trump more money by paying uh, for his uh, hotel Hotels, accommodation. Right. 
Um, we have uh, Ben Carson, who is just an embarrassment. We have an interior secretary, an EPA person. We Betsy do have DeVos? A, yeah, the, we have that. We have, <laughs> and by the way, no oversight in the Senate right. on any of these uh, people. We have um, an acting secretary of, uh, uh, of Homeland Security who at least the other day said he's lost control of the department. Um, and, of course, we had uh, the previous occupant of that office, Kristen Nielsen, who we now learn uh, stood up to Trump only in this sense. When he basically said, let's shoot to kill these people coming in over the border, she said that would be illegal. So he turned instead to shoot him in the legs. Right. Besides putting up the moat with uh, sharks alligators and alligators and, sharks. and the electrified fence. Yeah. yeah, and the flesh-piercing um, po- yeah. poles. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's reasonable. Um, all of that. And you've got um, a transportation secretary, Elaine Chow, who has uh, manipulated the department for her family's uh, shipping interests. Right. And, of course, uh, you have uh, the Senate majority leader who's protected Russia during the campaign and got as a benefit a huge plant in Kentucky. Um, it goes on and on and on. And we've never seen anything like that before. Nothing. You know, we've had instances in the past where you have of an occasional bad apple in the cabinet or subcabinet. Um, but this is everyone. Yeah, we don't have a good apple. There nope. is no good apple. It's it's and 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 Rick Perry, who thought he was acting as an emissary for gas companies. Yeah. In the energy department. It, it's yeah. it's shocking. Okay, last question before we go into your five good things. Um, Do you think anyone, any of these appointments in the cabinet or President Trump, and I don't like to use those two words together, do you think amongst them all, any of them have read the Constitution? No. What a dumb question. Okay. (laughs) Well, why not end on a dumb question? Oh, I didn't think so either. You know, maybe if there were someone to read it to. Oh, and one last thing. One last thing. Do you, uh, because I have 20 last things I want to ask you. Throughout the three terrifying years of this presidency, there's been more more attrition than in any other administration. They're they're gaping holes in the State Department, as we know. They're gaping holes everywhere in justice. Does... Is there a possibility that someone thinks this is going well? Does uh, does does Trump is he so delusional? Oh, and then I have one question after that. <laughs> that he thinks this is really successful? Uh I think he uh he clings to what's happened with the economy. He believes that uh, he uh, has created jobs even where they uh, have actually fallen away. Mm -hmm. He believes he's cut these great deals on trade. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there are clearly people out there who believe it as well, in part because, you know, they're uh, caught up in the theology Mm -hmm. and and, uh, don't want to look at realities. Um, But I think Trump obviously knows he's in big trouble now. When we know that um, back when uh, Sessions would not, uh, or recused himself, right. and would not listen to Trump, 
and that there would be an independent counsel. Trump privately said, uh, I am, I'll say it, fucked. Yeah, he, he said, said that. that. Yeah. Um, and so he knew all the bad things that he'd done. Right. But I'm sure in his own mind, and he, uh, the, the narcissistic sociopath can twist things around, um, he believes that that's what everybody does and it's okay. Right. Um, so you have uh, that uh, reality out there to deal with. But, you know, when I started to talk about his presidency at the beginning, I used three words, uh, autocracy, kleptocracy, mm -hmm. and cacistocracy. Uh, the first two are obvious. Yes. And we have these uh, moves towards autocracy, uh, and they're dangerous. The kleptocracy we see with almost every dictatorship. Right. Um, and this is people uh, basically... Uh, raping the country for their own uh, economic and financial benefit. Um, and But cacistocracy is a less well-known term. It's a term that goes back to the 17th century. It comes from a Greek word, and it means government by the least and uh, most incompetent and most unscrupulous among us. Oh, wow. And, what a great the word. It, the root of it actually is, uh, ask any kid what caca means. <gasps> Seriously? Uh, yeah. It's caca. So, right. you know, um, two years in to his presidency, we had uh, close to half of the 700-plus uh, key policy positions in the executive branch unfilled. We had a, a quarter to a third that did not even have nominees. We've had turnover like we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. We've had more acting cabinet secretaries than we've ever seen before. Many of them acting way beyond what's supposed to occur and many violations of the Vacancies Act because Trump knows that even with a pliant Senate, some of these people couldn't get through confirmation hearings because right. of their uh, lies and corruption uh, and incompetence. So we have incompetent government to go along with everything else. Kaka everywhere. Have a nice day. Yeah, yeah. Good talking to you. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, okay, last question. Seriously, you must know George Conway. Uh, yeah, I don't know him personally very well, but we've become kind of uh, Twitter buddies. Okay, as have I. Ish. Yeah. Not as much as I am with you. Yeah. Not as yeah. much as I am with you. <laughs> Norm, what do you make of the Conway marriage? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, I really am not sure. I will say this. I do not believe those people who think that it's all a game, that they've concocted this as a kind of um, heightened version of uh, Carville Madeline. Right. Um, uh, he has become as articulate and impassioned an opponent of everything about Trump um, as she is a, a uh, I wouldn't say impassioned, um, uh, robotic uh, proponent of everything about well, Trump. Well, but but still and, robust. Yeah. Lee. And I, yeah, um, I'm not sure. There may have been something in the interaction between uh, Kellyanne and Trump that really has enraged uh, uh, Conway. I think it, uh, you know, what I would guess is, you know, they have small children. 
that this is an area that's an enormous wedge between them, that they basically agreed that this is not something they'd discuss at home, but he would go out and take whatever position he wanted, and she would take her position, and they would try and keep it separate from everything else. But I have no idea. One of the things that I've learned over my many decades is uh, it's impossible to judge other relationships. No, that's true. But I, I must say, with every tweet of George Conway's, I just think, how do they sleep in the same house? But it's none of my beeswax. I know it's just a it's it's another distraction in this caca land of ours. Okay, you were good enough, Norm Ornstein, to supply us with five things that make your life better. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start with your number one, Twitter. Sure. I got dragged to Twitter kicking and screaming um, by my publisher. Same here. Yes. Publisher. Yes, and because they make reluctant. us do that to promote yeah. our books because they promote don't the do that anymore. And, you know, I thought, oh, it's 140 characters. You I'll probably say something really stupid and then have to live with that. What am I going to learn from it? But I quickly learned that it was a really good thing in a number of ways. One is I discovered that if you really wanted to find out what was going on in the moment, you don't turn to CNN.com or even turn on the television uh, to listen to one of the uh, uh, quote-unquote news networks. That Twitter gives you the best um, filled out picture of people who are on the ground. Mm -hmm. The second is I'd say half of the things that I read come from Twitter including a lot of things I would never see otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it's people either putting out their own uh, uh, op-eds or uh, articles or um, saying, boy, this is something you should all read. And I do some of that myself, uh, must-read things. Right. Um, and, of course, the one of the great pluses of their architecture is you can see something if you follow people who you trust, um, Click on it, read it, go right back to what you were doing. Um, for me, the, the bigger benefit has been that it's a catharsis. Um, you know, I've got a, a lot of people who follow me, um, and uh, instead of yelling at the television set, yelling at the wall, throwing things. Yell, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I can vent uh, on this medium and get responses. Um, and it's also, it becomes an avenue for a little humor, too, um, where I can have a great line and not just have to say it to myself. Um, so it, it's, it's been um, a, a real catharsis for me. Uh, and, I've, and I have to say, I've made uh, friends that I wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Uh, some with celebrities. Um, and they've proven to be really nice friendships. Um, uh, and uh, but others with just uh, people I wouldn't necessarily have known. Um, you know, some of the uh, the uh, really remarkable former prosecutors who are mm-hmm. uh, active on the medium with historians. Yes. Um, and uh, that's been uh, really nice. You, you know, you develop a community uh, uh, on it. Um, so uh, that's that's been a big uh, a big plus for me. I have to say that my introduction to Twitter came 
exactly before my last yeah. book tour. My uh, publicist made the account. I didn't even make it. I didn't want yeah. it. I didn't think I could use it. And I'm addicted to it. And I know I am. And I find, I mean, before Trump, Twitter was full of the funniest stuff. It was a place for comedians to try out material, and yeah. I adored that. Yeah. And followed mostly just news sources and, and comedians. Now I follow a lot of people I respect, including George Conway, including yeah. many Republicans who have a very refreshing take on what's going on and very helpful. Yeah. And yeah, I, I so that's it. Okay, number two is your yeah. found your debate foundation yeah so uh, just you know a little backstory here um, I lost my uh, son at 34 uh, in January of 2015 he was a brilliant young man uh, who was a national champion high school debater went to Princeton went out to Hollywood and at 24 had a psychotic break I'm still not sure what caused it um, but spent 10 years in agony um, a part of his brain disease is what's known as anosognosia, which is uh, you have no insight uh, into an illness. You don't believe you're ill. Um, one uh, way of expressing it that people can understand is uh, somebody with anorexia. You tell them you're skeletal mm -hmm. and they say, oh, come on, I'm, I'm obese. Look in the mirror. Right. Um, that's one version of that. But if in this country you're over 18 and you refuse treatment, there's nothing anybody, family members, professionals or others can do about it. Um, so he died accidentally of carbon monoxide poisoning, but driven by his uh, illness. And uh, we've created a foundation in his memory, the Matthew Ornstein Memorial Foundation. And we're doing two things. The first, as you mentioned, is in the debate space. Um, we have sponsored for five years a summer debate camp for public school kids from the Washington area. There's something uh, uh, called the National Urban Debate League, hmm. uh, which has 11,000 uh, kids nationwide. They're mostly Title I schools, mm -hmm. uh, all public schools. Um, our kids, 85% uh, minorities, and they come from the Washington area. Uh, this past summer, we had almost 200 wow. from fifth grade through high school for two weeks, all free. Wow. And they learn uh, these incredible skills, life skills, um, uh, and uh, they go back to their schools, form teams, uh, debate in tournaments throughout the course of the year. Uh, the National League gives out a National Debater of the Year award. They have eight finalists. Two of the eight were from our program, oh, and wow. uh, the winner of the National Debater of the Year was the winner of the Matthew Ornstein Award in 2017. Oh, cool. A marvelous young man named Jonathan Collins, uh, who just graduated from Duval High School in Lanham, Maryland, and is off to Harvard because the debate coach there recruited him. Oh, wow. I just got so, chills. Norm, yeah, that's fantastic. we giving an enormous, uh, you know, I will tell you, uh, Lisa, that the final final day of the uh, camp, we do a tournament and then an award ceremony. Mm -hmm. And my mantra at the award ceremony, and we'll get 500 people there, families, 
uh, grandparents, parents, mm-hmm. siblings. A lot of the kids now who are going into the debate camp are siblings uh, who saw their uh, older brothers and sisters uh, do this and want to do it themselves. And I say, I believe in equal opportunity. But it's not equal opportunity in this country when some people start 25 yards ahead of the starting blocks and others start 25 yards behind. Right. And our goal is to get people up to the starting blocks and then let their natural abilities and drive and talent take them to where they belong. And some of these kids are so talented. Uh, it's just a, a really gratifying thing. Well, and uh, the deba- one of my kids uh, was a debater in high school. The, the um, mental agility she had to d- work on and develop and that she achieved through having to come up with a yeah. retort, having to yes. rely on her wits, having to think fast and on her feet was extraordinary. If you can teach kids to enjoy debate and feel good about themselves doing it, that's an incredible gift. That is a leg up, of course. And you, learned, uh, you learn all sides of issues, and you have to debate them, and uh, you do it in a civil fashion. It's, right. Uh, it's a really good thing for a tribalized country. How do you uh, support um, the foundation? Where do the funds come from? Um, do you do a lot fundraising? Of them come from, well, they come from us, and we do fundraising. We uh-huh. uh, are grateful for contributions. Uh, you can go to mornstein, M-O-R-N-S-T-E-I-N dot org. Okay. Um, and, um, but, you know, we're determined that um, these kids are going to get this camp, which includes breakfast and lunch every day for the two weeks, for free. We're mm-hmm. not going to charge them anything. And uh, uh, there's gratitude on their part and the part of their families. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of these are uh, working class families, uh, some of them really struggling. Um, the degree to which the parents just knock themselves out to make sure that these kids can get to the camp every day um, is itself inspiring. Yes, I'm sure. And then number three, is it the same Matthew Ornstein Memorial Foundation that works on? Yeah. We're also very much in in the space of mental health policy, trying to you know, the goal is that other families don't have to go through the agony that we went through and that their family members don't have to go through the agony that uh, Matthew went through. So one of the main things we're doing here is a documentary that will be on public television probably in April um, uh, nationwide. Uh, and then we'll then take around the country uh, about a judge in Miami-Dade County, Florida, named Steve Leifman, uh, a visionary who's completely transformed the way the criminal justice system deals with people with serious mental illness and found ways to save lives and save money and built support across the political spectrum, which itself is unusual. Mm-hmm. He's trained 6,700 police officers in uh, crisis intervention team policing, the 911 respondents know if they get a call from that involves somebody with a mental illness, which teams to send out. They used to have an average of 25 uh, shootings and deaths a, a year in this huge Just in county, that county. Uh-huh. In that county, from it's the seventh most populous in America, from encounters between police and people with mental illness. Now they're down to less than one a year on average. Wow. And uh, the mayor of Miami was able to get their bond rating improved because of all the money they saved from wrongful death suits. They've cut the number of arrests in half and closed a jail, saving $12 million a year. 
and he has a uh, the most robust and innovative pretrial diversion program. If people with serious mental illness come in uh, with an, uh, a nonviolent felony or a misdemeanor, they're given the choice of going to trial, where they're almost certain to go to jail, or going into this program where they find them a place to live and give them wraparound services, a mental health professional, a social worker, a peer counselor. They get evaluated every month and in the court, and then if they uh, comply with the program within a year, um, they'll expunge the charges, and a large number of these people go out and are able to get back on their feet and, and lead good lives. Wow. Uh, so we want to take that around the country yes, and, and spread best practices. And that's very gratifying as well. Oh, that's incredible. Our filmmakers are very talented people who have a company called Found Object uh, Films in New York, and they're almost finished. Wow. That sounds incredible. I can't wait to see yeah. that. Number four is your son Danny's yes. new business, right? <laughs> so, my yes, my other son, uh, who uh, has uh, graduated from Yale, went out to California, worked for CBS uh, for a while, came back to be a special assistant to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission for four years uh, in the Obama administration, went back out to work at Warner Brothers, was uh, responsible for this uh, Kickstarter campaign that did the Veronica Mars uh, movie, oh, which yes. was an enormous success. A big success, yes. Yeah. How fantastic. And then and decided, I think partly in the aftermath of his brother's uh, death, uh, that he needed to get a, out and do something on his own. So he has this startup called Bundler TV. You can go to it at bundlertv.com do an, uh, an interactive quiz where you uh, demonstrate what television you need, like, uh, must have, what stuff you'd never look at. Um, the same with movies, your internet needs and proficiency, and then uh, he has an algorithm that will give you three bundles that strip away what you don't need and don't need to pay for with discounts and save you money and then you can do it through him and you'll get one bill a month he does all the back office stuff and the second part is a handy dandy guide which is wonderful if you've ever tried to search for something on cable uh, where you can put in <laughs> yeah. almost any movie or TV show and it will give you almost instantly um, a description a precy and then uh, links to where it is so if it's on Hulu or uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime, and then you can go right to it. Oh, wow. So um, I use the guide every day. Wow. Yeah, when we put the guide on our TV screen, yes. it makes me just, my eyes water sometimes. I just yeah. don't want to, Well, not worth you got to go through with every little, I mean, just, just as a, a, an enormous pain. So uh, just to give you an example, uh, we had heard about this Israeli television series called Srugim. Oh, I've heard it's great. Yes, and it's terrific. It's it's almost like an uh, Israeli version of Friends with modern Orthodox 30-somethings. And so we heard about it, and I went on Danny's Guide, and it immediately showed me that it was on Amazon Prime, and we went right there. So finding it on uh, uh, Amazon or finding anything on Netflix is a challenge. Have you seen uh, Stissel? We are right in the middle of Stissel. How much do you like Stissel? Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, that and... is the correct answer, Norm. Yes. That yes. is the only answer. Yeah. I love it so much. You know, yeah. 
that they are writing season three now? I didn't, you know, I, I uh, the uh, the downside to uh, something like uh, Srugim or Fauda mm-hmm. is you get to the end and you want more. Right. And with Srugim, they did three seasons and they were planning on doing a fourth, but then it stopped. And so it, it you know, it just it, it ends when you don't want it to end. I know, and but I was, you know uh, that hearing the same thing with with uh, Stissel. No, that that's was great. Ha- that was happening yeah. with Stissel, and yeah. and then the. F- international community of fans yeah, enormous demand made made them i mean and they wrapped it i think in 2014 yeah. and now yeah. they're doing it again okay. and um i just i met shulam yeah <laughs> he's kind of a jerk but you know we knew that well yeah that's, yeah. yeah i mean in real life but anyway, yeah yeah and number 5 is one we can all agree on kids it's red yeah. wine. Ah, uh, yes. Um, uh, you know, I uh, did not grow up in a family that uh, drank wine, except for an occasional shot of Manischewitz. Uh-huh. Um, but I, the first teaching job I had was in Italy, and uh, way back uh, in Bologna. And I learned to appreciate wine a little bit, um, and I've appreciated it more in the years that have followed. And in this stressful time, mm-hmm. um, a nice glass or two of a fine red wine, and there's so many good ones from around the world, helps. Yeah, we're we're working our way through Malbec right now. Um, yeah. uh, it's it's how you cope. It's yes. it's a coping mechanism for better or for worse. Yep. Hey, Norm, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight. And um, all the best to you and your family. And uh, I hope we'll talk again soon. We'll do it. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Norm Ornstein, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You can follow Norm on Twitter at Norm Ornstein. He's great on Twitter. And I do want to mention, and you can find this on our website at lisabirnbach.com, that if you're interested in learning more about his foundation, it's mornstein.org, M-O-R-N-S-T-E-I-N.org. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com, and you'll find links and photos to things we discussed today. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Poco Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week. Stay cool, if you can, and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.